Well, earlier I read from the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Let me also read now from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Verses 1 through 18. It says, Now the first day of the week, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down, looked, looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there. Yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other, other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom, whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take care of him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and that he had spoken these things to her. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you encourage us and strengthen us with this resurrection passage and the truth of Christ conquering the world. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, for the past several weeks I've been preaching through a series of sermons on Jesus' encounter with women. And here is an encounter that the Lord Jesus has with Mary Magdalene after his resurrection, right there on Easter Sunday at the tomb. And the first thing I want to point out, I want to point out three points about this passage today. The first thing I want to point out today is how unexpected 
this event was. Christ's resurrection was very unexpected in this passage. You see this, first of all, with Mary Magdalene. She actually assumes that the body is stolen, that somebody took it. And in the ancient world, as many parts of the world, people would like to go in and rob graves, take the the goods out of the grave, and they have put a lot of spices and myrrh and things around Jesus' body, a lot of valuable things there. Uh, He was buried in the grave of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. So obviously it could have been somebody going in there to rob the grave of Jesus and steal his body and throw it somewhere else. And Mary Magdalene assumes that. And in fact, everyone in this passage of Scripture is shocked and bewildered. Not only her, but also the two disciples, that's Peter and John. They're shocked to see that there's no body here where Jesus was. And in fact, John's very explicit about this. He says, as yet, they, speaking about himself and Peter, did not know the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. What John is doing, he's writing this scripture against himself. He's indicting himself with his own ignorance, his own immaturity, Peter's immaturity, their own darkness of mind and heart, not catching the point that this is the resurrection, uh, that they didn't expect it or anticipate it. They are shocked by this, even... Mary Magdalene in the passage. This is the overarching theme, really, of this passage of Scripture. And so when you think about it, it's rather interesting how John and the gospel authors are writing about Jesus' resurrection. And that is this point. They are writing in such a way that it's self-humiliating. The gospel authors have no problem in exposing their own ignorance, their own failures, their own stupidity, their own lack of understanding the Scripture, because they are focusing on such an extraordinary event that has never happened in human history, and they are so impressed with what Christ has done and the results upon the rest of the world that they're taking themselves out of the picture. They don't want to promote themselves at all. They only want to promote Christ Jesus. Y'all, this is one reason why the Bible stands out whenever you compare the Bible to all of the records of of, uh, ancient civilizations, ancient history, and historical realities. It's because of this. Most people who write about history in some sense or another often have a political agenda. They often have a personal agenda. And when you study ancient history, sometimes it's hard to know the facts from the fiction. For example, Julius Caesar wrote about his Gaelic wars that he all the conquering he did in in France in that area before he ascended to become the emperor and he wrote that for personal benefit. And he's like the only source we have of all the information of those wars and historians will read about the Gaelic wars and all that Julius Caesar did, but they but the biggest stumbling block is well, what is he exaggerating? What are the real facts behind this? Because this is all about his self-promotion and his political agenda. Other writers in history will have biases of their culture, will have biases of their tradition, whether it be the Greeks or the Romans. And and you read about historical realities and you're, you're thinking the biggest obstacle before some people, some historians, is the author itself. 
because the author sometimes has an agenda or a purpose beyond the facts. He wants to sell you an idea. But what you have right here is there's no personal agenda by the authors here. Not a personal agenda, not a political agenda, simply a Christ agenda. They're taking themselves out of the way and they're just simply pointing to something that is shocking. They're pointing to something that has surprised them. They're pointing to something they never anticipated, even though it was told to them. And they're saying, world, this has shocked us. This is like a nuclear bomb of a reality that we had no idea about. This is why you can trust the veracity, that is the truth, of the historical reality of the resurrection of Christ. These authors are not pointing to themselves at all. They're demeaning themselves and simply pointing to the reality of what Christ has accomplished. So that's why the, one of the values of seeing why this is surprising and, and uh, shocking to all those who witnessed the resurrection of Christ. Secondly, from this passage of Scripture, the way it's written, the way John writes this, there is a progression. There's a progression in the word seeing and the meaning to see something. If you listened really closely, you could hear it in the, the passage as I read. Because let me get you along in this progression. Mary Magdalene comes in the, the scene, and what does she do? She sees that the stone has been rolled away. She goes over there and tells Peter and John about it. They come in, and John says they looked inside, and they saw the linen cloths and the face cloth that was folded together at the head scene where Jesus had lain. They're seeing that, the linen cloths. They leave, and then Mary Magdalene looks in, and she sees something else. She sees two angels, one at the head, one at the foot, and I've preached on this before, but that's a picture of the reality of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant in the holy place was a box with two angels on the head and the foot, and the priest would sprinkle the blood between the two angels. Well, here is the reality of the Ark of the Covenant, where the bloodied body of Jesus would have been sitting there between the two angels. And Mary Magdalene sees it. But John continues to go on with this. She turns around, and then she sees Jesus. But she thinks it's the gardener. All these seeings don't get it. The first scene, the tomb is removed. She doesn't get it. They see the linen cloths. They don't fully get it. She sees the two angels. She doesn't get it. She sees Jesus and she still doesn't get it. When is she going to get it? When he calls her name. When he says, Mary. She recognizes his voice. And then she responds saying, Rabboni. That's when she knows she finally gets it. She sees and she understands. She recognizes this is the Lord. It makes you think about what John is, is emphasizing here. You can see an empty tomb and you still won't get it. You can see all the face cloths, the shroud of torn and all this stuff. You still won't get it. You can see angels. You can see all the glory of the Old Testament. You still won't get it. You can even see a man show up and you may think he's a gardener. You're not going to get it unless Jesus Christ calls your name when that personal relationship is there in your heart and he calls you by name that's when you get it and you see that's the resurrected lord this is fulfilling what jesus christ said in john chapter 10 verse 14 he says i am the good shepherd i know my sheep 
and uh, my own know me. They will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus likes to call people by name. And this is what happens to the church, and that is the visible church I'm talking to right now, and that is this, is that when does Jesus first call your name? He first calls your name in baptism, through the waters of baptism. Whenever you are baptized, that's when Jesus' name is placed upon you. When you're baptized, Jesus comes and says, you're mine, you belong to me. He calls you by name in baptism. And did you hear the prayer of confession we prayed today? Every Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day we come and worship the Lord. You're reminded of your baptism. You're reminded that God's name is upon you. You're reminded that Jesus is calling you by name to believe and trust in what he's done. None of you can say, Jesus never called my name. All of you can say, all of you who showed up at church, all of you who've ever been baptized, you can say, yeah, Jesus... He called my name, I heard it. All of you have the spiritual ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to grab onto Jesus by faith. There's no excuse. If there's any fault, it's not God's fault. It's your fault for rejecting or not hearing that name. And His name is even calling you now. So therefore, you should believe today with confidence, with trust, with faith in Christ, not wondering if Jesus calls him by name, but that he has called my name, just like he calls Mary. You should account yourself as sheep in the pasture because you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the confidence that is the nurturing aspect of the visible church giving you the means of grace to encourage your faith and your identity in him. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the Word of God. Now finally, let me point out another aspect of this passage of Scripture, and that is, you can call it this, biblical typology. Now, the word typology is just simply this. There's comparisons. There's something over here that compares with something else over here. And there's there's a typological point that John wants you to catch. And that is this, that Jesus Christ is the new Adam in a new garden with a new woman. You'll see this. This is the echo. He is, going, he is echoing something, meaning there was a sound that started in Genesis 3, and it goes all the way back, all the way forward to the future of this resurrection. In the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden, Adam was the first gardener. He was supposed to till the ground, be a gardener, grow things, and Jesus is confused here with a, as being a gardener. This is important because John wants you to pick up on the theme that here's the new Adam in a new garden. And did you notice that Jesus Christ does not say Mary and then Mary? He mentioned, he addresses her twice. The first time, Jesus calls her woman. And why are you weeping? And then the second time, he says, Mary. This is the same theme that Adam did. Whenever the woman came from his side, Adam said, her name shall be woman. And then after promise, God's promises came, he didn't call her the mother of death. He called her the mother of life and named her Eve. Gave her a personal name. You see the same theme with Jesus. He refers to Mary as the woman, and then he refers to her 
uh, with her personal name, just like the first Adam did. So what John wants you to pick up here is that, and I need to say this as well, in Genesis 3, God promised the woman that her seed, her child, somebody's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Well, Jesus is the seed, the child of the woman, and he crushes the head of the serpent in his resurrection. And so whenever the woman is here, and he's, tell, he's telling the woman, hello, I'm here, he's basically saying, look, God has fulfilled the promise to the first woman. The promise of Genesis 3 has come to fulfillment, and God has made good and secure on his promises. You'll notice also that in the fall of man, after the fall of man, God renewed the woman's desire for the man. And here you see this desire in a spiritual sense. Mary Magdalene wants to cling to Jesus, desiring her Lord and Savior. And Jesus basically says, I have not ascended yet. I'm not leaving right now to go see my father. You have time. You can don't, don't cling to me right now. Go tell my brothers that I'm here. After he ascends, when he becomes absent from the visible eye, then like Mary Magdalene, what do we do? We cling as the, sprite, the, the spouse, the bride of Christ. We cling to him even now by faith. Jesus is referring to his brothers. Notice the family language of Jesus Christ. His brotherly relationship to his disciples. He doesn't call them disciples. He calls them brethren, his brothers. He's going to his father and their father, their God and my God. There's this new family called the Christ family. So that's biblical typology. But let me give you another way to apply this and also as a corrective force to some of the things in our culture. There's a false typology that I've observed where a false typology will come and grab this passage of Scripture and try to force itself within this passage of Scripture. And I've seen it go around in various circles, especially on the Internet. And that, that the false typology upon this passage of Scripture comes from feminist interpreters. The feminist interpreters will say something like this, Look, Jesus is choosing Mary Magdalene as the first preacher of the resurrection to the disciples. Therefore, Jesus approves of women being preachers in churches, women pastors, and women elders. See what they're doing? Instead of appreciating how this typology in John 20 compares to Genesis, they put their own sexual typology upon it and try to argue for feminism there in the Bible here in this passage. And these feminist interpreters will completely ignore what Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 1 Timothy 2, Titus 3, and Ephesians 5 about male leadership. So they'll ignore all that and they'll, they'll enforce their feminism upon the resurrection of Christ. The reason why they do this is because feminist typology is based upon two things. Number one, an envy of masculinity and a hatred of what is feminine. Whenever a feminist reads about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what they are doing is they, they assume that Jesus' resurrection is dismantling the roles of male and female in Genesis chapter 2. So to the feminists, Jesus' resurrection is not restoring the world of Genesis in a greater glory. He's actually destroying 
the world of Genesis, especially the roles of male and female. That's how perverted this interpretation is. It's rather astonishing, I find, how people can interpret the best thing that God has ever done in the worst possible way. This is why, actually, feminism is one of the worst and most destructive forces in our culture. Because it teaches women to be ashamed of their feminine glory and beauty. And it tries to weaken men and cause men to be passive. And now, after, after decades and decades of feminism... Now you have people trying to even change their gender and all that stuff. But here's the point. You see, the reality of Jesus' resurrection is restoring God's world that he created in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Jesus is restoring the truth of Genesis 2. He's restoring the truth of the world. In other words, let me put it this way. For men, you function as a better man with the resurrection of Christ Jesus. For women, women, you function as a better woman with the resurrection of Christ Jesus in your life. For example, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He says, If we are united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Jesus, that the body of sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been justified from sin, is what Paul says. Lastly, you can say this. You're made in the image of God, male and female. And God loves his images. God loves what he creates. Satan always tries to distort, to destroy to degrade the beauty of God's creation and the beauty of God's created order. In Jesus' resurrection, what he's doing, he's grabbing the dirt. He's grabbing flesh and he's saying, I'm going to make this flesh even more beautiful. It's going to become immortal. That's the goal that we have. We're looking forward to our own future resurrection of becoming immortal like the Lord Jesus in our own physical flesh. So you can say it like this. Masculine, masculinity and femininity, male and female, are both shining images of God upon the earth. God loves his, the beauty of his design, the beauty of his structure of male and female and his created order in the world. And so what God does, he says, we're going to make this brand new. We're going to glorify it even more. And it, it, it happens first through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ takes a specimen of humanity. That's his flesh, his own very flesh. He resurrects it and he ascends it to the throne room. That's our goal. Whenever we die and we go with the Lord, we don't go to the lower part of heaven. We go to the highest part of heaven. And we sit with the Lord Jesus Christ awaiting the resurrection of the dead. That's whenever our souls will be joined together with our brand new body and heaven and earth will be one. We'll actually be married and come together. Heaven and earth joined together. And that's what you call eternal life because then we will never, ever die again. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your word, the great optimism that Jesus Christ gives us. And also the great affirmation that your resurrection gives 